Good morning again. Is that good? All right. Well, good morning again. Thanks for coming. Good to have you out this morning. Welcome once again to Calvary Chapel, Franklin. Yeah, I'll tell you what, once you start getting situated, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read the word together. So once you've found a cozy little spot, I'll ask you to stand up if you would. And we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3 today, the first three verses. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Let's read these together. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. By the way, I should have put verse 4 up there too. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen? Praise the Lord. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. All right, well, this morning we're going to continue our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you'd open up to chapter 1, in our first study in this, we got through verse 2. Last week we took a monumental jump forward and got through verse 3. Today I'm actually expecting to get through verse 6. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, don't, don't get your hopes up or anything, but we'll see. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to go ahead and actually read starting in verse 3, where Paul again says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And Father, we pray, as always, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to understand as we read and as we study. We thank you for the times you give us to dive into your word together. And we thank you, Lord, for the appreciation you've given us in our hearts for it. We pray that, Father, here in this passage, which for many is a a place of confusion and even concern, we pray that you bring clarity, that, Lord, you'd speak to us and help us to understand what is being said here, that we would understand the security and the confidence that we can have in you. All of salvation is of you, and we thank you that none of it has to be in our flimsy hands where it can fall out and we can find ourselves in peril, but rather instead there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and dive into this passage here. And uh, I wanted to read verse 3 as we started because verses 4 through 6 and beyond, really, but the passage we'll cover today is deeply anchored to verse 3, the idea of the blessedness that God has bestowed upon us. Um, There is both the immediate that we talked about last time. There's the immediate sense in which God has blessed us, you know, and even does bless us on a daily basis for by virtue of being in a relationship with him and this kind of thing. But there is also a far more uh, exhaustive and far-reaching blessing that is ultimately in view here first and foremost. It's actually not unlike Romans chapter 8 where Paul talks about 
much of the same thing, whom he foreknew and so on, he ultimately glorified. But at the end of that passage in verse 39, or verses 38 and 39, it reminds us once again that there is uh, uh, security and safety in the love of God because nothing can separate us from it. Well, that's because of something. There's a reason behind that confidence that we have. And we're going to learn a little bit about that today. And I'm going to ask you to hang with me a little bit. Um, we have touched on the subject of God's choosing, or we might call it election, or even sovereign election. Uh, we have touched on this when we were in the Gospel of John a long, long, long time ago. Um, but it is good for us as we come across these passages to kind of prepare our hearts to consider deeply this subject. Uh, this is a passage that, again, has caused many to be concerned and, and to feel um, uh, maybe lacking in confidence, you know, the idea of choosing in that. What if I'm not chosen and that kind of thing? That's um, natural to sort of hear these words and to at least have those thoughts enter our minds, but therefore it becomes a passage not for us to run away from, but rather to dive more thoroughly into. Uh, this is one of those places that requires a bit of rigor and a desire to, to delve deeply because we are, in fact, talking about something that ultimately finds its answer in the mind of God. It's something that is lofty and and arguably among the loftiest passages in all of Scripture. And so as we take some time, and and obviously a woefully short amount of time, really, uh, in in an hour or so, um, we're going to do our best to touch on it a bit. Uh, We won't exhaust it, and the reason I can say that with absolute confidence and clarity is because for millennia, people have been discussing this, and nobody has. Uh, there, is, there are points to this area of understanding that bring us beyond the end of ourselves, that have answers beyond the vanishing point. But again, that doesn't, that shouldn't cause us to set it aside and think of it as something that, well, since I can't fully understand it, why study it? Now, we should study it and try to understand it as well as we can. Uh, for one thing, because God has said it, and he's given it to us to understand. Secondly, because we never want to approach a part of Scripture and feel as though we shouldn't spend time in it. Every part of Scripture has its place in its context, and that's why it's important to study it from cover to cover, to understand as best we can what God has done and spoken of and has revealed in his revelation from Genesis through Revelation so that we might know not just the words better, but that we might know the one who is behind the words better that we might know God. And truly, even though I've kind of given a spoiler alert and said there are some parts of this that we're not going to really be able to grasp, no matter how many hours we spend on it, in and of itself, that gives us something to wonder at. The fact that there are some things within the revelation of God, within a, within a book that is intended for us to understand almost all of it with genuine certain clarity, There are those places, there are those mountaintops that are just beyond the clouds, just out of reach, that I'm not sure an eternity will fully understand. But nonetheless, that again in itself should cause us to wonder. And if I may, wonder is something that is woefully fallen short within the Christian church nowadays. Not that there aren't people that get all exuberant and excited and try and create an atmosphere of wonder, but genuine, heartfelt wonder at looking at God's Word and recognizing how far beyond us He actually is, something that causes us to humble ourselves, to realize that to touch on these things, even on the most distant periphery, 
is enough to bring us to an understanding of the gap between the wisdom, the majesty of God, and our fallen understandings. I think it's worth spending time in a place like that because it's good for us. And so we're going to go ahead and look at these things today. Again, just as he chose us. Now, let me start by saying that whereas that concept, again, strikes fear in the hearts of some, the idea of God choosing to save some raises lots and lots of questions. But let me, again, reemphasize something here. Paul is thinking in one continuous thought as he describes these things. He has gone from speaking about the blessedness of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How has he chosen to do that? What is the means by which he has chosen to extend those blessings? By choosing us, choosing to grace us, to pick us out of humanity in our fallenness, in our destitute condition. It's important for us to take a minute and consider the gospel even at this early point. We generally have grown up, and culture has contributed a lot to this in Western society, that we earn the things that we have, that we attain things by virtue of hard work, sweat, and therefore something becomes ours because we have earned it. Call it a promotion, a raise. Uh, a state, a status in life, somewhere like that. We worked hard to get to where we are. The gospel is decidedly other than that. It is inescapably other. It is clearly, biblically speaking, it is abundantly clear that the gospel is a complete and total exception to that mindset. The gospel does not rely on you and I at all. The gospel is something that we receive. It is something that is given to us by the only one who can give it, and he gives it to those that have no capacity to attain it, apart from it having been given to us. It is the gift of God, not of works, as Paul would say in Ephesians. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 2, we've been there a couple of times already uh, over the past weeks, but it is it is to set aside the grace of God to think that you can earn it. Paul would say that if, in fact, righteousness or a right standing before God, the idea that we could be pure and holy to stand before God, if that could be earned through our works, then there was no purpose in Christ coming to the cross. It would be based upon our efforts. So therefore, we have to understand that the gospel is God's gift to us. It is his gracing us. It is his bestowing upon us that capacity, not just to do something different, but to be something different. Again, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, it's not changing behavior. It is changing our very nature. And Paul talks about this when he speaks about the new nature that we have that now does battle with the flesh, the old nature. But that new nature would never be ours if it were not given. Now, again, that is fundamental to the gospel. We are woefully, hopelessly lost, and not just because of our behavior, but as we mentioned last time, that even as David said, 
in sin, my mother conceived me in the womb. That doesn't mean that the act of conception was sinful. It means that David, even from the point of being conceived, was a sinner. He hadn't done anything yet. He just came into existence. That's right. And the minute he did, he was already born in sin. We call this federal headship, the idea of Adam uh, and we being under the curse of Adam uh, by virtue of just being human. And therefore, Christ comes, a new Adam. We now come under him and his federal headship. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a whole thing behind that. But the basic idea is we go from identifying with man in our sinfulness to now identifying with Christ in his righteousness, all because he took our sinfulness upon himself and in exchange gave us his righteousness. All that to simply say, as I said last week, that before you even get out of the gates, we have lost. And we have to understand that. Because if there's any part of this, of, of the gospel that we feel like we earn or hold on to, we have a different gospel. Is that pretty clear? Now you may disagree with that and you may want to take me to task on that. And we will go back and forth with scripture all day, but we will not budge on this point. If the gospel is received, is, if it becomes efficacious or we hold on to it in any way because of our own works, it is a different gospel than the one that God himself has given us. This is not of man. This is of God. Now, the means through which, again, the vehicle by which he bestows this goodness and grace upon us comes by virtue of his choosing. Now, this is where I'm again going to ask you to hang with me for a minute because I'm going to talk about things in ways that are going to make some of you very uncomfortable. But hold on, okay? When God chooses us, it is important that we understand that he does not choose us because we did something to get his attention. There's not something about us that made him choose us. He chose us simply because he did. When God chose Abraham in the Old Testament, he didn't choose Abraham because he was a good Jew. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile. As Chuck Missler used to say, that Abraham was an idol-worshiping Gentile before God called him, right? So he was not by any means, in any way, living in some way that God said, oh, this is the guy. No, God simply chose Abraham and made a great nation out of him because in his grace he chose to do that. In Romans chapter 9, uh, if you follow our our uh, online postings and that, we're going through the book of Romans, and as it turns out, we've got to this sort of same place in that study as well. I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, but in that passage, there is mention of how in order to demonstrate the fact that God elects freely of his own volition, he chose Jacob and hated Esau even before they had done anything. Now, these are uncomfortable concepts for us, and understandably so. The difficulty I have as a pastor is that I'm not going to water those things down and try and make them say something they don't. And it's important that we understand that when we come to a passage that is difficult, we don't change it to make it more palatable to ourselves. The Bible very clearly, without question, teaches God's unconditional sovereign election based on his own choice and nothing else, contingent upon no one and nothing. 
He simply chooses as he will. Now, again, that's difficult for us because it raises some very, very fundamental questions to which, frankly, when it comes to trying to understand the mind of God at that point, we have no answers. However, we do know some things. Abraham, I just mentioned him a moment ago, Abraham, when God had sent angels to come and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, we're all familiar with this. We may have taught it in Sunday schools. We've certainly heard it. Will not the judge of all the earth do its right? If there are a hundred righteous there, would you destroy the city? And God said, I'll spare it for the sake of the hundred. How about if there's 90? I'll spare it for the sake of the 90. And Abraham continues to push all the way down to 10. So in other words, by tens, he makes his way down, which means he has asked God like nine times at this point, nine or 10 times now, will you spare the city if there's even now 10? Well, 10 essentially comprises his own family there, a lot in his family, right? Essentially. And God said, I'll spare it for the sake of the 10. Now, this teaches us a couple of things. It teaches us the long-suffering nature of God, even in the face of a, of, of, a, of a pair of cities that is generally used in the kinds of conversations that are not polite. When we talk about Sodom or sodomy, this is wickedness. This is evil. This is where this term comes from. Even in view of this, God is willing to extend grace for the sake of those who are there. We also see another principle there. God does judge the city, but not until he first removes those who are righteous. Lot's family, Lot and his family. And then God brings judgment down upon it because he's just and he has to bring judgment. But he removes those who are righteous. There is yet another lesson. How many of you would have known Lot was righteous until Peter talked about it? You'd never know from the story. I won't even go into what he did, if you're familiar with it. This is how gracious God is and how long-suffering he is with sinners. So when we can, we're confronted with, with issues that are beyond our capacity to understand, we fall back on the things that we do. God is gracious. God is good. God is just. The, the answer to the rhetorical question that Abraham asks, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? The answer is yes, he will do what is right. There are some things that God cannot do. <gasps> I thought God could do everything. He could do anything. It's not true. He can't violate his nature. He can't be less than perfect. He cannot sin. There are things that God cannot do that make him less than who he is. So we can't say God can do anything. And we ought to be thankful that God can't do anything by that, by that definition. The idea that there are some things that God cannot do by virtue of his nature and his perfection and his holiness and his glory. One of the things that God can't do is abide forever sin. And so eventually judgment must come. Now the fact that God saved anybody is remarkable. And if you're honest with yourself, you will accept that idea because you'll look at yourself and you'll say, I don't know why God saved me. I know what I'm 
what I've done, and I know what I'm capable of. I know just how fallen I was, and if not for the grace of God, I would still be. And it's out of his kindness that he did this. He saved you and I graciously, not just with grace, but graciously. He reached into our lives and set us free. The Bible clearly gives lots and lots of scripture that speak about God choosing to save some. Again, difficult thing for us to get our minds around, but salvation does start with him. It's important that we understand that. Again, it's not contingent on our works. Timothy, uh, Paul would say this to Timothy, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So in other words, before anything was created, before anyone ever existed, and you and I didn't exist before we were born, contrary to some various cult beliefs in this kind of thing where they believe that you existed in a soul and now you got it. None of that's true. You and I did not exist except in God's plans down the road per se, but we didn't exist until we were born. We will now live forever. We didn't live forever before. And so before time began means that these things were decided before time ever began. Now, we don't want to change what the Word of God says. And so we see these passages for what they are. They may frighten us. They may unsettle us. They may cause us to question the fairness of God from time to time, which is why we have to fall back on that which we do know about God. But we don't change what he said. This is a window into his way of doing things that he has given us some sense of understanding of. Not comprehensive, though, which means there are things beyond that we don't know. Just like our children, for example. Um, as our daughter gets older, she requires more insight to understand the why when we tell her to do something or ask her to do something. When she was two, three, four years old, she didn't really have any ability to understand a lot of the reasoning behind why we might do something or why we might ask her to do something. Go clean your room. In her mind, she might be thinking, well, why? Everything's right where I put it. But we wanted to clean her room because we want to learn to be organized. We want to learn how to sort of sort things out and to develop some good habits that will serve her well in life. I'm not sure they've caught on yet, but we're still working on it. Um, anyone with a teenager knows this. But the idea that we, even though we've grown up in our faith, Hopefully years have brought wisdom and understanding and that kind of thing, and we require deeper answers to deeper questions. But there are some questions to which God the Father looks at his children and said, it doesn't matter how well I explain this to you. You just can't get it. You won't understand it. I don't know that in eternity we'll fully understand it. We'll maybe more fully see the justness of why he did what he did. But why, if we'll understand some of it, I, I don't know that for sure. I hope so. But God does things of his own volition, of his own decision, of his own will, by his own sovereign choice in his sovereignty. And we do not dare diminish that. Because when we do, we diminish him in our sight and in our understanding. Now, thanks for hanging with me this far. There are also a number of passages throughout the scripture that clearly put the onus on man to respond to what God has made known. Clearly, man is held responsible 
for the choices he makes or does not make in regard to the truth and the light that God has given. For example, in uh, in Matthew, we know that Jesus would say in in, in verse uh, not Matthew in John chapter five, uh, verses thirty nine and forty. You study the scriptures because it is in them that you think you have eternal life. Yet it is they that speak of me. Yet you are not willing to believe or willing to come. Sounds like the onus is on the listener. This right here for you to see, but you will not, not cannot, will not. But then in chapter 6, verse 44, he says, no one can know the Father unless the Father draw him. And so you have, even by the Lord's own mouth, this speaking out these ideas on two separate ends of the spectrum that somehow reconcile, certainly in his mind, as God. But to us, and likely even to his hearers, may have caused them to scratch their heads a little bit. Now again, There tends to be a greater confusion with this and difficulty with this among Western minds than among, oftentimes, other people around the world. There is discussion on this subject that goes all the way back, not just 500 years when the Reformation started, but all the way back. You hear Augustine talking about these things. You see these issues brought up by Paul in places like this and in Romans and such. These are things that are true in the mind of God, both the idea that he is fully sovereign and chooses who he will choose based on his own criteria, unaffected by anyone else. But at the same time, there is a legitimacy in his holding responsible those who choose to reject the truth as he has given it to them. Romans chapter 1 is one of my favorite passages in this regard in in trying to reconcile these ideas. It doesn't reconcile it. But it speaks to this idea pretty dramatically in my view. Where God, where the Holy Spirit through Paul describes how God has made known himself and has shined light for people to understand, both through the creation and general revelation, all these kinds of things, but mankind has suppressed it. Not passively let it go by like a pitch or something like that, but holds it down. Does not want to hear it. Does not want to believe it. And therefore, as these things unfold, God gives them over. These are difficult things. How do we reconcile a God who sovereignly elects, but yet our responsibility to respond? And and just to put one more difficult thing in there, we'll talk about this idea of predestined here, but the idea of of foreknowledge and calling and predestining in these ideas. There are those that would say, well, the Bible never really associates predestining with somebody who's not chosen, not called. That may be true in terms of the Greek term. It is true. The six times it's used for predestined, it tends to speak of what God does for those or to those or in those who he has called. And so it tends to, it seems to speak clearly just to believers. However, there's no way to escape the fact that if God has chosen some, he has by definition not chosen others. This is where the difficulty comes in. This is the question you're all thinking, well, and you don't want to say it out loud. But that is the difficult part. That is the challenge for us that causes us to say, okay, like Paul, if I may, at the end of Romans chapter 11. Paul, at the end of Romans 11, just breaks into a song of praise. 
or not a song, I don't know if he's singing it per se, but he breaks forth into praise, essentially saying, who can know the mind of God? These things are beyond our finding out. Even in all of his Holy Spirit-inspired understanding of these things, he comes to the end of himself and just is stunned, is amazed. Now, I should also say, as we move uh, into further into this passage, that the words that Paul writes here in Ephesians and also in Romans, when he deals with this subject, it is not to strike fear into your heart. It's actually to bring comfort. It is to bring a sense of security. We don't understand what goes into God's choosing. We do know God is fair. We do know he's just. We do know that he is good. And good not as defined by you and I, but legitimately, genuinely good. And so we can't know some of the ins and outs of this. But we do know that he will do what is right. And so therefore, when we talk about the idea of election, predestining, calling, uh, foreknowledge, these kinds of ideas, for a believer, this becomes the wellspring from which these promises ultimately find their, their starting point. It is because these things are true that you and I can know that there is now no condemnation for those who who are in Christ Jesus. We can know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No, No height, depth, width, breadth, no created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because what he has begun, he will be faithful to complete until the day of Christ, as Paul would say in Philippians 1. So wrestle with the questions. It will cause us to go deeper into our faith and to understand it. It will bring us into a greater sense of wonder at the personality and the very person of God. Don't avoid them and hide from them. Read them, study them. Now again, I'll reiterate my spoiler here. You will never fully understand this. I promise you. And by the way, I'm not reformed of the reformed camp. So when I say these things, I'm, I'm, that's just my perspective. I don't land there personally. I don't think Reformed people are the enemy. I mean, some of the greatest minds in history have been in that camp wrestling with these ideas. But I have read many of them, and they eventually come to the conclusion that some of these things are beyond us. On some of these questions, most of them land on, I don't know how these two ideas reconcile. But as it's often, and, and it's, it may sound trite and a little cliche, but essentially the old adage that these are like two parallel lines that run all the way down into eternity that never intersect except in the mind of God. Somehow he, in all of his not only wisdom but grace, has worked this out in such a way where he does understand how this all works. And so I tend to fall on the sort of the sentiment of people like Moody who said, well, I don't know who's all elect or why, but God save the elect and then elect some more, you know? Um, or Spurgeon, when he talks about the idea of God's sovereign election and man's responsibility. How do you reconcile these two concepts? And he would simply say to that, I never try to reconcile friends. Somehow they work, somehow. But our understanding is unable to really totally grasp that, I believe, in my opinion. So that being said, let's move on to verse 5. Since I got this far and no one's thrown anything at me or anything, I, I'll assume we're good to just roll through. By the way, I, 
I will try to leave some time at the end for questions and answers as well. Uh, I want to be fair about that. So now verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according uh, to the good pleasure of his will. Predestined, again, having much to do with, from the way this term is used throughout Scripture, again, six times it's used, it seems to always be associated with what God does in or through uh, or to believers, those who are saved. And so here that tends to follow, the idea that he has predestined us to adoption as sons. Those whom he called, he predestined, the predestination and calling and foreknowledge, these ideas, actually, let let me just use some big words for just a minute here. Not to impress you, but, but words help us sort of convey big ideas with, 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 with individual terms in that. There is in this discussion of how God chooses and sort of the order of things in his election and ultimately leading to glorification in that, in these early parts of the question of, of foreknowledge and choosing and these ideas, there, are, there is a term in particular that, that comes to the forefront, and it's an old term that goes back some ways. Uh, it's called lapsarianism. Uh, you can think of lapse like time lapse, if I can sort of clumsily say that. But the idea of lapsarianism is an attempt to understand sort of in a chronological way or an order of events how God decides. Now, that term and sort of the study that underlies it is by definition speculative because nobody lives in the mind of God to know that. But some brilliant thinking in this has come out, but at the same time, the idea of his knowing and electing and all these ideas, and even some of the definitions of some of these terms, in an effort to understand it, some sense of the order of how God thinks in this regard um, is, is, is brought forth. But remember, God is infinite. He's outside of time. We use chronology because we move moment to moment. God doesn't. Think about that. No time from God's perspective, except that he's created it and we live in it and it's not like he doesn't understand it and he pokes into our period of time from time to time, but he is outside of it entirely. Time is an invention based on gravity and things like this. And so therefore, time and space are all created. That is part of what God created. So we can't apply to God's mode of thinking our mode of thinking. It's different fundamentally. Again, these are lofty ideas, and they cause our minds to be blown, as they should. This is part of what underlies worship, when we realize just how grand God actually is. These are some of the concepts that bring us to that that, that place of worship. But anyway, so predestined us to adoption. The idea that we have been predestined, or ultimately sort of picked out for adoption as sons. Now, as we said last week, sons is a masculine term, but the concept that underlies it is that of those who stand to inherit. And so, therefore, we have been called and and predestined by God to inherit something like a son would. Uh, So, in other words, women, uh, again, as Paul would say in Galatians, there's neither male nor female in terms of our right standing before God. Um, there is this understanding now that it's not just men that stand to inherit as a result of being children of God, but both men and women, believers, stand to inherit. Now, this inheritance is referenced again later in verses 11, and we get glimpses of this as we make our way through. But the inheritance that God has stored up for us, as Peter has said, is waiting for us there and is kept there for those who are kept by the power of God, First Peter chapter 1. The idea that you and I 
are, 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 are knowing with absolute certainty that we are going to ultimately inherit that. And that's a beautiful truth for us to, to camp out on and to understand and to find rest and peace in. Oh, see, I tell you all to turn your phones off and look what I did. Turn that off there. There we go. It's buzzing in my pocket. I don't know if it's going to affect the signal, but so the idea that this is laid out for us to one day inherit with absolute certainty is part of what falls into this whole discussion. Notice again, it is kept in heaven for you who are kept. Nothing will separate you. What he has begun, he will finish. So as a believer today, you and I are called and given the opportunity to live in utter, absolute confidence that our salvation, because it does not rest on our own grip or our own shoulders, it rests fully on his that we can know without fear that when we take our last breath on earth, we will take our first breath in heaven. And that is why it is called his glorious grace, because that's what it is. It is beyond, it's amazing beyond words that he would save a wretch like me to take one who is blind and now be able to see from utter darkness to his glorious light. Now, um, in fact, I'll have you turn to Galatians, turn left one book, chapter four, because Paul does speak to, or a couple of books, I, no, one book to the left, Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. In all my explaining, we've done scarce amount of flipping to other passages, and I don't want to be in the habit of that. But Galatians chapter four, starting in verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, uh, the spirit of his son, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, think about that. Most of us want to leave something to our kids. One day, Nina, all of this will be yours. She'll look at our house. Now, of course, you know. But, you know, the idea that we want to leave stuff for our kids. Um, and that's wonderful. We think it's, 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 you know, it's something that can help them and all that kind of a thing. Imagine what the inheritance that God has given us is. Again, we don't deserve this. I'm, you know, I mean... But think about it. God has promised there's an eternity for you and I to experience being in his presence. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we might also be. I would argue, by the way, I guess I'll stop with this point on this, but I would argue that the greatest treasure and reward in heaven is God himself. The fact that that void within us that only he can fill I mean, we, we have that filled to some extent now, right? But to be in his presence and to be in absolute and total peace from all fear and anxiety, to be in the presence of the one who, whose image we were made in and whom we were made for, for him and by his good pleasure, right? And so we'll finally be there with him. That is what heaven is ultimately all about. Finally, rest, away from all of the challenges, the difficulties, the stresses, the strains, all of these things all done in his presence. As adopted children, you know, Julie and I can remember the first pictures we ever got. I've mentioned Nina a few times here in the in the service, but 
We can remember the first pictures we got of her. We adopted her from Russia when she was uh, 15 months old. And when we first decided to go this particular route on adoption and those pictures came in and we had a chance to see her for the first time, your mind just starts to wonder. You start to think about this life with this little one. And at some point, you start to think of the life that you're going to be able to give her. You know, she'll be able to grow up in a situation that is far better than what it would have been where she was. Um, and to know the opportunities she'll have, all these wonderful things. Well, those are, you know, whoever has those thoughts, those are noble things to think about. The idea of what you can do for your child and, and the future you can give them. The reason they're noble is because they start in the heart of God. This is what he is like for us. He has made us to know him and to dwell with him, that he might be this loving father to us. And so this is what awaits us as his children. This is why we long for him. This is, I mean, not the stuff per se. That's why I say he's the reason heaven is heaven. We long to be there. We long to be with him. We long to see our Abba, Father, Daddy, as Jesus would teach us to pray in, in Matthew 6. The idea of knowing him and being with him is what we long for. It's not just that we're getting out of here, but that we're going there. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to anticipate. And Paul speaks to this here in anchoring it to what God has done for us and saving us. This is what is ultimately waiting. And this is according to the good pleasure of his will. This is his desire for us. And this is again, verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now in Ephesians, he would talk about we who were far off were brought near. The idea that we were once enemies and outcasts and this kind of thing, but now we've been brought near. We now are his. This is why we started with the gospel. Because the Bible tells us that nobody seeks after God. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul in in Romans um, 3, verses 10, really through 15, but matter of fact, turn to Romans uh, 3. We'll read the passage. Romans chapter 3. He's talking about the, the, the sameness between Jews and Greeks all being under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, and he's going to quote here now from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and a number of other places, but just these first few verses, or first couple verses. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That's an important point. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. This is a description of our condition outside of Christ. You may have thought you were looking for God. I may have thought I was looking for God. Chances are that if I was looking for God, quote-unquote, what I was looking for was something that made me feel better and helped me feel kind of spiritual in the process. It's like the old adage, right? God created man in his image, and then man went on to return the favor, creating a God in our image, right? And so a lot of times we're not looking for God. We're actually looking for somebody like myself, but who can help me, but isn't too much different than I am, who thinks like I do, sees things the way I do. No, this this is actually the description of what we're like. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. All have turned away. This is our condition. This is the description. So, you know, and again, if you came here hoping to feel good, I'm sorry this wasn't probably your Sunday. But, uh, but, but these are the truths of our actual condition. And it is actually good for us all to hear this because it, it, it pulls us out of this mindset 
that were essentially good and just sort of correcting errors and boo-boos and mistakes so that we might become uh, more better or something. It's like the old expression, you know, God didn't come just to make sick people well. He came to make dead people live. You and I were dead in sin, and he breathed life into us that we might be in right relationship with him. We want Now, for those who, who struggle with self-image, I mean legitimately, those who feel as though I have this, I just, I don't like myself, all that kind of thing, I understand that. Let me tell you that this accurate description of yourself helps you understand who you are in Christ. It helps you understand just how far he will reach out to save you because he loves you and because of his grace. Life isn't about building our own self-image. It's about finding our identity in him because it's only there that we find ourselves, as Paul just said, accepted in the beloved. We all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted. We all want to experience a depth of relationship that helps us understand that we're important to somebody. We look for it in friendships, dating relationships, marriage. We look for it in all kinds of relationships. But the one place where it finds its truest anchor and the one that never shifts and changes is in our relationship with God. He loves us. He loves us, and it's something that we lose in sometimes our clinical approach to theology. We cross the the T's, we dot the I's, we get all these things right, and sometimes we have a really great clinical understanding of theology, and we sometimes forget that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He loved you, he saved you, and he has an inheritance for you that one day you will, without question, without any fear of it going away or being taken from you and being put aside, you will inherit. He loves you. And it's not because you're lovable. If it were, it would diminish just how far his love extends. You know? I used to use the analogy of the wet puppy on the side of the road. We're like that wet puppy on the side of the road, all pathetic looking and mangy and in need of a bath and everything. And I reached out and picked up that puppy and brought it in and washed it. Well, the truth of the matter is there's something about that puppy that made me think it was cute and pathetic. And so that made me want to clean it up. That's not why he chose you. You had nothing to do with it. Those kinds of things make God respond to us first. That's not always love. That might just be pity. But it's always, it starts with us then. No, it starts with God. And when we understand that, we get a better sense of the depth of his love. And we used the word condescending last week, and not not in a negative term, but in true, justifiable, yet fully loving condescension, he reached down and he pulled us out and saved us simply because he loves us, not because we were lovable. Matter of fact, it's, um, we all know the fairy tales. And forgive me if I use a Disney reference here for just a moment. I'm not endorsing and all that kind of thing. And actually, this story doesn't start with Disney. It actually starts 2,000 years ago in Greek mythology. And we're familiar with sort of the French rewriting of it under the Disney story. But it's the story of Cinderella. 
And the whole idea of, of her prince coming and this whole kind of thing, I, I happen to believe that a lot of these stories really contain kind of an echo of the ultimate meta-narrative, if I can use a modern term. But we think, oh, Cinderella, you know, she's beaten down and she's abused by her stepmother and all this kind of thing. And then Prince Charming comes and sweeps her away. Oh, that's we're like Cinderella when the prince comes and sweeps. No, we're not. You know who we're like? We're like Drizilla. We're like the, the daughter that nobody wants. We're the one that's mean and spiteful and, and wants to hurt Cinderella. We're, we're like that. If we think we're Cinderella and Prince Charming's coming for us, then we have too high of an estimate of ourselves, and we certainly don't have a biblical view of ourselves. Not saying the old story is a Bible story. But the reason stories like this ring is because there's something about that concept of being loved and being swept away from difficulty in that. But the person in the story we most resemble is not the one that actually had character and kindness and, and perseverance and was finally discovered. No, it's the sister that nobody wanted. It's the one that was trying hard to be loved by somebody, but just their nature was completely messed up and terrible. That's what we're like. There is none who seeks after God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But again, it's not just that we sinned and that made us sinners. No, we sinned because we were sinners. Like we said at the beginning, from the very conception of our very lives, we were born in sin. We were conceived in sin. We lost from the very start. That's how we know God loves us, because we were completely unlovable. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for the unrighteous. That is the love of God. And like I said last week, I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I'm thankful for it. God is good and God is gracious. So let me stop there for just a moment and uh, open up just a uh, Well, we're a little bit earlier than normal, I guess. But if anyone has a question about anything we've talked about today... Here we go. I don't think we have a wireless mic to pass around, so uh, so if I don't like your question, I'll reframe it in a way that I like. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest. If, does anyone have a question about that? Yeah, Michelle. Right. Right. Conception. But yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. That, that's true. Your, your actual birthday is nine months earlier than the one you celebrate. I mean, you know, you, when you were conceived in the womb, you were you, you know, and so, yeah, when, when we talk about from birth, uh, yeah, that's, thanks for clarifying that. By the way, uh, you're all familiar with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Praise the Lord. Michelle has been part of an organization and started an, or, I think started an organization back in the seventies fighting for that very thing. And that organization still exists today. And so um, this is the kind of person that helped to get it overturned. Praise the Lord. I hope you'll forgive me for that, but it's, it's, uh, but you know, there's flesh and blood people, even people you know, that, that played a big part in that over the years. So praise the Lord. But yes, from conception. Um, but yeah, that, that's the, the beginning story for us. Anyone else? Whew, thanks. That was an easy one. All right, Sarah. On the opposite side, you said last breath on earth, first 
Yeah. Oh, um, okay. So if we're, if we don't get taken in the rapture and we die today, are we in heaven or are we waiting in some different place? Is that what you're asking? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Paul says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And so I take that to mean that we die, we go to heaven. We don't sort of soul sleep or wait in some other condition or place. In, uh, in, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells what I don't think is a parable as much as an account of a rich man and a man named Lazarus, who was a beggar. And these, as you know the story, the two of them died. Uh, the beggar, of course, lived in poverty and, and all this kind of thing. The the, the rich man, uh, what does it say in the King James, ate sumptuously or felt, you know, whatever it is. But So they uh, um, they both died, and the uh, uh, they both went to this place uh, called Hades. And there were, at that point... Two compartments. One was, uh, again, variously translated, but essentially Abraham's side. And then there was this other side, a place of torments. And as Jesus describes it in this telling, there is a chasm between these two places that neither one can cross to the other side. The rich man can't come to the side where Lazarus is. Lazarus can't go to the side where the rich man is. And so after some conversation, you know, they, they have this discussion in that place. But, um, when Jesus died and he led captivity captive, I take that to mean that he went to that place where like Lazarus would have been and those who died in faith prior to the resurrection, and he led them now ultimately into glory in heaven. So that part of this area is no longer present or or, uh, populated. The other part, uh, the place of torments, is referred to later in the book of Revelation when death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, which is the final resting place of those who have rejected Christ and ultimately are apart from him for eternity. And so um, I taking those things together, I would assume that we instantaneously are in the presence of the Lord, awaiting our glorified bodies. When the rapture happens, the dead in Christ rise first, receive our glorified bodies, and then we who are alive and remain will meet them in the air, as Paul describes. Uh, that is my taking of those things. Is that the question? Did I hit it? Okay. All right. Praise the Lord. Boy, you guys are going easy on me. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. You know, there, um, I will say there, it's funny in, in both this arena and in some eschatological discussions, all sides point to the other as being more likely to become apathetic in walking with God, evangelism, and that kind of thing. Um, the scriptures tell us to go out into all the world, so we do, right? Um, the fact that um, even though God, however he goes through this election process and that kind of thing, he still uses human instruments— to bring the gospel. And so, you know, how shall they, you know, how shall they believe if they've not heard, right? And so, um, matter of fact, uh, the armor of God, as Paul would say, feet shod with the gospel, preparation of the gospel in that, right? The idea that we bring it is something that God not only tells us to do, but he gives us opportunity to do, you know? Um, Tony Evans once said, um, you know, why, uh, oh, how did he put it? But, you know, it's like, why evangelize 
you know, if, if God's going to just save those who are going to be saved and those who aren't, aren't and all that kind of thing, why polish brass on a sinking ship or however you put it, that kind of thing. We said the same reason you go running, even though we know one day you're going to die, you know, I mean, just, you know, I mean, there's, there's motivations and that kind of thing, you know, so, but, but we do it because God's called us to do it. Now, now I do believe, uh, again, on the other side of that discussion, that God does hold man responsible to respond. I don't understand how those two things work. But I would say that because that is true, it behooves us to go and bring the gospel. Um, again, I don't, I'm, you know, it's been, I won't say 30 years, but it's been more than a decade on this subject trying to understand these things. And I mean, really trying to understand. I've got a bookshelf full of reformed authors trying to get their understanding. I just, I don't want to be unfair to this subject. You know what I mean? So I don't know, but I do know that there is, there is a tremendous sense of blessing that comes when you have a chance to be there in a moment when somebody moves from darkness to light, to know that you have something to do with it, that God actually used you in that circumstance. Now, we know that we plant, we water. It's, the, it's God who gives the increase, right? No, we don't save anybody. But to be part of that is just a blessed thing. So I, I, don't, see, I don't see it necessarily leading to an apathy, I understand where the question can come from, but I think that's much more of a personal, subjective thing. It's like um, in eschatology, there's a similar discussion. You know, if we think that Jesus is coming at any moment, why do anything? Because we're just going to be ready for him right now. Well, I would disagree. I think, like, I'm if I know he's coming today, I want to be doing this, or I want to be out with my family somewhere, or doing something, you know, when he comes. There are other perspectives that I think would breed an apathy, whereas this one doesn't. But all of us think the other one tends to breed the apathy and that kind of thing. So that's why I say I think it's kind of subjective a little bit. I think really, if you understand the joy of your own salvation, you're going to want to share it. It's going to be a natural expression of your own thankfulness for grace, right? And so it's a great question, though, but but that, that would be my take on that. So, yeah. Darn. Gideon's International has an app that... I think I have a package of them out in the car. But you can give that to somebody and they can select from 2,000 languages for a Bible. So if you don't have any other way of witnessing, that would be a very simple, easy, safe way of saying, here, if there's something that you need to know in the Bible, you can get it in any language. That's awesome. For those who couldn't hear, the Gideons have put together a Bible app that is available. I think you've got a CD of it or something. And then... Oh, it's a card. Okay, with a link, they could tell. Okay. Oh, great. So you can scan with your phone a QR code and go right to it. It's got the Bible in 2,000 languages. You can also read it and listen to it on that app as well. Or you can actually go to our YouTube channel, and on any one of our videos that we've posted, there's a link to it because we do support the Gideons here. And so uh, you can share that link. You can get the card and hand it out to a friend who can scan the QR code on their phone, and they can have the Bible on their phone right there in, in virtually any language that they might no. And so uh, it's a great, great resource. So by all means, feel free to pick one of those cards up or, or you can get it off our uh, YouTube channel as well. Anyone else? Yeah, Larry. Um, and this is probably uh, not everybody's uh, way of thinking, but over the years when reform conversations come up about the elect, uh, and, and I, I'm just like a Okay, let me stop you there. You know more about medical terms and ideas. You can't pull the C student thing with me anymore. 
That doesn't jive anymore. That's I, you can't you can't be saying C student anymore. You can recite medical terminology. Yeah, you, that, you can't wear that coat anymore. <laughs> no, on, on your left, I like because we have free will to either accept Christ or reject Him. We have free election, basically, to accept Christ or reject Him. So, in my simple way, when the conversations come up, to sort of squash the conversation because it can lead to, you know, opposing arguments sometimes, is uh, I look at it as, okay, I had the election, I had the to accept Christ. He knocked on my door for like five days. It was it's a long story, but oh my gosh. I'm so glad I elected to accept Christ. Well, okay. That's, so that's my simple definition, but it seems to uh, sort of help neutralize the dividing and opposing sides. You know, yeah. Well, let me let me speak to that from two sides. In the first place, you should never be arguing with people when you're witnessing, right? So that's uh, there's a there's a point at which I can see that. On the other hand, this discussion is one that does require, if it were that simple, it wouldn't have been an argument for a thousand years. It's just, it's, so there, there is an element to this that does require us to, um, to recognize what these arguments actually are. And they're scriptural arguments. They're not, you know, hypotheticals and that kind of thing, generally speaking. There, I, I think there's a stepping off point where it goes beyond strictly speaking exactly what the scripture says. But I, I'm, in, in honesty, I'm continuing to study this topic more and more. Um, this is a discussion we're having today because it's here in the Word. We came to it, and we don't skip it, right? I want to give the impression that we should just blow by things. On the other hand, in a situation where you're sharing your faith, um, nobody should skip an opportunity to witness because this person might not be elect. Again, Moody, save the elect and elect some more, right? Um, the Bible says very clearly, he chose you, you didn't choose him. So there's, there is, again, there's a tension that just exists there that, we shouldn't argue about in those moments, but we also shouldn't set aside in moments like these where we talk about them. It's like these are, when we're having our own personal study time, we do have to give respect to these discussions because they are, they are profound. You know, um, I totally agree with your point. I don't want to argue with somebody when I'm sharing my faith. On the other hand, when someone grows in their faith, they, sh- they should be willing to come at these things and, and understand the various elements of them because they, they exist. They're there and they're, um, you know, great minds have written great books because they've considered these things, you know? So, I mean, I'm not shining yawn or anything, but it's just there's kind of two two areas there in that point that really need to be borne out. Um, and Larry, by the way, has uh, got a wonderful gift of evangelism. If he's not sitting here, sometimes you'll see him on the five points in Franklin uh, witnessing to thousands of people as they walk by. And so it's, uh, it's yeah, and you're right. You don't want to argue with these people. You want to take every opportunity you can. It is. It's a childlike faith. Right, it is, yeah. Yeah, well, faith is easy. I mean, it's easy, easy, but it's faith is not complicated. You believe or you don't. But what's behind that? It's kind of like you ever see those pictures of the iceberg that sunk the Titanic or something? There's this little bit up here above the water. Then they're like, there's this mount, mile deep ice thing underneath that nobody saw, you know? So it's, it's just kind of like that. There's, you know, it's, it's, um, you have to respect what exists beyond that. But when it comes to sharing your faith, most of the time that's not coming up in the conversation. You know, it's, uh, it's not about, okay, well, thanks for sharing the gospel with me, but am I elect? You know, most people don't ask that, right? So, you know, 
because even if I believe I'm not, you know, it's just, I mean, just, you know, and, and if you, if you, if you are, if you hear the gospel and, you know, and, and all of us at one time or another are in a place where we've heard the gospel and we've not believed it. I heard the gospel for a long time before I finally believed it. Um, but now that I do, I have no question about who I belong to, right? Um, so if you, if you're concerned that I'm, you're in a place where you're wrestling with this, you are questioning, you're want, not, not the subject we talked about today, but with the gospel, the person of Christ, uh, the idea of being saved by his finished work on the cross. If this is something that you're wrestling with, um, it's good that you're wrestling with it. It's, if you're being honest about it. I mean, if you're just sniping everything that somebody tells you, then, you know, your heart is pretty hard. But if it's soft and you're, you're thinking, okay, well, is this true? Good, healthy skepticism is a good thing because it causes us to consider what we're putting our faith in. I do admire people that just, they hear it and they believe. Like, they may not know a lot, but they believed and they were saved. I, I wish I got saved when I was five. Uh, someone in here told me they got saved when they were four. I wish that were true for me. Like, I, I believe you. I'm just saying I wish, but, you know, think of all the heartache and water under the bridge that wouldn't have had to happen. But I needed more than that. Like, I needed to see the guys that were witnessing to me and them living out their faith. I needed to hear the answers from the pulpit as, as Pastor Phil and Elk Grove was breaking out the word week after week. Like, it took a year sitting in a church like this to finally put my trust in Christ on top of the circumstances that I was going through at the time. And so it's, um, I wish that were true for everybody where you just, you know, but, um, but for some of us, it requires more. And so, Okay, anyway, uh, maybe one more question, because I know we're running a little long, if anyone's got one. I'm going to call it before I get in trouble, so, okay, all right. Well, Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for um, just the blessedness of being your sons, your daughters. We thank you for your grace by which we are saved and upon which we stand. We thank you for your love for us and that there is an eternity that awaits And this is all you're doing. This was all your idea. And it was all through your accomplishment in Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that he took all of our sin, past, present, and future, and he paid for them once and for all. The debt is now paid in full. It is finished. And so we thank you that none of this rests on our shoulders to do something, Nothing rests on our shoulders to hold on to it. This is all you're doing. And it brings us such peace and security to know that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and grace. If there's anyone here this morning that is not a follower of Christ, is not a believer, I want to invite you to pray with me now to receive him. There's no reason to put it off. There's no reason to wait till tomorrow or next Sunday. I invite you, having heard what you heard about the gospel today, that you would come and believe. So pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I confess to you, I am a sinner. I've been the God of my own life, and I've kept you at a distance. I have suppressed the truth. But I do believe that Jesus died for my sin, all of it, that he rose again, and that because he lives, so too will I live. I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and everything that you have done and afforded for me. 
I do ask you to help me to walk in your ways until I see you face to face. But I thank you that when I do, I'll be able to stand before you unafraid, unashamed, a new creation in Christ. Thank you again for your love and your grace for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and stand. Let's sing a closing song together. And by the way, if you prayed that prayer, please come on up after service so we can talk to you and pray with you. But let's, let's go out with song. Let's sing Jesus, Lord of Heaven. Jesus, Lord of Heaven, I do not deserve the grace that you have given and the promise of your word. Lord, I stand in The sacrifice you made Mercy beyond measure My debt you freely paid Your love is deeper Than any Your love is deep. Your love is deep. Your love is high. Your love is great. Your love is wide. Your love is all we ever need. Your love is all we ever need. Your love is deep. Your love is high. Your love is great. Your love is wide. Your love is all we ever need. Your love is all we
Jesus, your love has no bounds. Jesus, your love has no bounds. Father, we thank you that your love, your grace, your mercy are fully extended to us. Thank you, Lord. Your love is boundless. Father, we pray you go before us. The Lord, you would lead us by your Holy Spirit each day deeper into our understanding of and love for you, but mostly a deeper understanding of your deep and abiding love for us. Thank you for the rest and the peace that that brings. Oh, to experience that in your presence, Lord, one day. Thank you, Father, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day.